any CEO and myself included of a growing technology company should be scared to death that whatever they're making, their customers don't want. Yeah. That is that's it. That, that is that is what the number one thing a CEO should be worrying about is it's not about how much press you get, it's not about how good you look in a picture in the real deal, whatever your industry magazine is that's relevant to you. It's whatever you're making, if it does not serve your customer's need acutely and precisely, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your investor's money. Welcome to episode 69 of the Placemaking Podcast. We are thrilled today to bring you a conversation with Adif Cotter. He is an architect turned tech entrepreneur. He is the founder of Redist, a venture-backed seed stage startup working to transform access to public economic development incentives. He is a dual graduate of MIT with a bachelor's degree in architecture and urban planning and from Columbia's business school with his MBA focusing on finance. He has broad experience in design and development. And he is the host and producer of the American Building Podcast, which has achieved a top 25 ranking in its category on Apple Podcasts in six different countries. Please welcome Adif Cotter. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. We're excited to have you here today. We are thrilled to bring you Adif Cotter, who is the CEO of Redist. And uh, we want to make sure that uh, we cover all range of the projects and the, and the type of work that he's working on. And, and we're going to cover a lot of ground today. So bear with us. Uh, we're going to talk about the thread that ties everything together. And then in the vein of stewardship, how being a good salesman and providing a good product for the world at large also ties together with um, being a steward of the public trust and planning for the future of the, the world at large. So welcome, Atif. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here, Mark and Matt. Uh, I would say uh, the the way I always like to introduce myself is as an architect because that's my education and that's my vocation. And if someone is curious to poke and kind of ask more beyond that, uh, the, the two main things that I spend my time on is uh, uh, leading and being the CEO of Redist, which is a technology company focused on transforming how uh, developers, uh, property owners, and, and tenants uh, use access and take advantage of public incentives. The, the company, we also sponsor a terrific podcast called the American Building Podcast that we produce with uh, the world-renowned design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. So those are two things that, that I spend my time on. That's great. So how did, how did you get started in, uh, in the field of architecture and what sort of led, you know, from your childhood or, or you know, growing up uh, into the, the work you do now? Uh, so I think I had the, the fortune of being really good at a lot of different things in high school. So it is really um, more in terms of what I was uh, interested in doing. And I was fascinated with this idea of doing something that Frankly, nobody that looks like me, or at least that I knew of, uh, was doing because the vast majority of my uh, family and family friends were things like doctors and scientists and engineers. Uh, and I thought there might be in this kind of 17-year-old uh, kind of partly formed mind, I thought there might be some good in having somebody like me do something that people like me don't normally do. Uh, so uh, I really liked uh, studio art in high school and 
uh, quite good in math as well. And uh, those two things, there's elements of that in architecture. I took the first year classes when I went to MIT in the School of Architecture uh, and I really liked it. And that's what I decided to uh, major in. And I eventually got licensed and I also did a second degree when I think similar to you, Mark, uh, in uh, urban planning as well. So I was able to get the formal education and experience both thinking on the very large scale as well as on the detailed uh, individual building scale. That's, it's, that's very interesting. So I'm curious, you said you also got an urban planning degree on top of that. What, what drew you to that degree as well? Uh, so for me, I also have, uh, I'm just generally very curious about the world around me. And in particular at that time and still now about, I'm curious about public policy and how that actually shapes um, what gets built in cities, whether it's entitlements, whether it's approvals, whether it's allocations of public funding, like what I focus on in Redist, uh, public policy has a very, very heavy hand in what we might imagine might be a very, or in some cases, a very purely capitalist endeavor, which is real estate. Um, so because of that interest, I uh, found my way to the uh, urban studies and urban planning uh, department. And I found that was a great way to explore aspects of things that affected and impacted architecture uh, and development um, and gave a context to what I was learning within the architecture studios. What do you think are the biggest differences in the way the architect mind works and the way that planning mind works? I think that they are changing, but particularly what I would remark is this idea that um, at best, uh, or perhaps popularly an architecture, an architect is someone that uh, in a silo, in a vacuum, is this genius that makes this drawing and then that becomes reality. Uh, I think that that perception is one that is quite toxic for our industry and I think leads to um, the idea, for example, Pritzker Prize winning architect Zaha Hadid, when asked about um, the, the impact or the, the consequence of designing a project in a country um, in Qatar, which she knew full well that conscripted labor from countries like from where my family's from, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh were going to be used to build this particular building, which was for the, uh, world, the upcoming World Cup uh, there. And she said, uh, well, frankly, none of that's my responsibility. I'm just here for the design. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that being, and she's not the only one, there are many, many people like that perhaps many, many, much more egregious than the way that she said that. Uh, so uh, I think that the way architects think uh, and the way they're, they're perceived to think is in this very siloed, small, uh, genius type of way when the reality is the furthest from the truth. Uh, and oftentimes they're very large firms that actually um, are the ones executing on those designs. Uh, so I think that's that's the perception, that's the belief, that's the idea. And I think that's the way many architects think of themselves. Um, But I would say on a different side, uh, urban planners, I think, uh, do have a larger context. But I think there is often a big challenge in actually being able to get their ideas executed and put into place. Uh, So I think someone that is able to uh, technically be able to create something of consequence, which is a construction drawing set that is then used for actually uh, doing something, um, but do it with 
a context and a sensitivity and an empathy and a curiosity for the world around them is the ideal combination of the two. Yeah, that, excellent answer. That I've seen that chasm between the planning world and the design world as being one of those where both are very interested in being able to bridge that gap. Um, but it, it just takes so much time to have that skill set and to to embed yourself in the, in both processes, which are very very different, mm-hmm. in, in order to understand how you can translate those through there. So, how does that experience? How did that form your thinking around creating Redist? So for me, the when I got started as an architect, uh, I worked as a designer at Gene Kaufman's firm. That firm is now called Watney Siegel Kaufman. Uh, and then I went to uh, Turner Construction. And both of those early experiences really helped me start from the smallest of scales, which is the designer putting together um, exterior wall details for, for projects that we had. Uh, and then from there to being on a construction site and um, uh, convincing, working with, coordinating with, cajoling, convincing contractors to do things the way that I wanted them to do after. <laughs> their manager as a field engineer, uh, and eventually then taking the next review, the next lens up uh, as a developer. Those are all those important transitions that got me from being um, an architect to being ready and capable to recognize the opportunity, the immense opportunity that exists in being able to change how people like me access public financing. So I would say in particular, I would remark that the projects that I worked on at uh, Extel really allowed me to see that even if you were at a firm where there were no limits to the resources that were at the disposal of that firm, um, which is the same case with Dishman Spire or uh, JDS or any of these other colleague firms in, um, related uh, in New York, uh, there never seemed to be a coordinated, consolidated, simplified, organized way that anyone did anything related to public financing. Um, that experience plus my own, when I started my, uh, development company, when I left Extel in 2017, made me see that smaller firms who were often the intended recipients for public financing programs, uh, are challenged across so many hurdles put in front of them to actually be able to access that money. So oftentimes they give up or don't even pursue it. So for example, I didn't pursue historic tax credits or new market tax credits, even though those would absolutely be ones that I could have used on my projects um, as a developer. And then finally, it was being appointed a city planning commissioner in Hoboken. And at that time, when I got started, we were tasked with the re-examination of our city's master plan. And big parts of that were to uh, extend, uh, enlarge in areas that would become uh, eligible for uh, short-term and long-term uh, tax benefit structures, which are called um, uh, pilot programs. Uh, so short-term uh, pilots and long-term uh, pilots. And to, to do that, you have to understand that you are essentially taking money from the public coffers in order to um, have this notion or subscribe this idea that you are going to encourage economic develop- development that should be a greater social benefit than the tax receipts that they that company should have um, should have been obligated to give. Uh, and as you can imagine, oftentimes, not just in Hoboken, in many places, 
around New Jersey and New York and elsewhere, uh, those decisions are made without proper consequence and worst of all, feedback loops of what actually happened at the end. Uh, so um, for me, those three experiences really made me feel that there was some way, any literally any way could be better than the way that our industry is currently doing. Yeah. And I feel like in a, in a risk um, intolerant environment like cities, you know, it's hard to make that case until you can really get down into the economics and say, mm-hmm. here's a dollar in, here's how you can get $3 back. Mm-hmm. But if you can put $2 in and you get $15 back, like we need to show you the difference between these two scenarios and two approaches. I love, you know, the public private partnership scenarios and all the other partnership opportunities because, and I've said this before on the podcast is when the cities own the water and the sewer and the streets and the zoning and entitlement and permitting and occupancy and, and everything up and down the line, you start to see that the, what you're contributing, I think is that like final nail in the coffin that, you know, that cities and all kind of governmental entities have to realize is, you have a role in the private sector and not just in regulating, but also incentivizing the type of work that you want to see done out there. And cities will go build their own roads, mm-hmm. uh, but they won't go put the money into many of those type of programs. It sounds like that you're, you're leveraging. You know, to be honest, it's um, the, this, the setup of your response was correct. But what's so fascinating is there are taxpayers as together, we contribute a hundred billion dollars to um public incentive programs for our industry, a hundred billion dollars. And I think that my little company, I feel like we, we have this charge, we have this mandate on behalf of the 77 million taxpayers in America, we have to do it better. We must do it better. There is no choice but to do it better. Uh, So we are chipping away at it and we want to really transform the sense of accountability that those um, that this entire infrastructure, this entire part of the real estate industry um, is able to to speak to. And I think one thing that I would say in response to that, you mentioned about um, cities being recognizing the the benefits and the the positives that they have. I feel like to really frame this conversation in a very, I think, tangible way is to imagine the worst possible scenario of what you just described. And I think that was the entire uh, Amazon HQ2 uh, process that I think made an absolute mockery of the the democratic process and Mm -hmm. this idea of uh, a capitalist system. Uh, And uh, I think in particular, what it felt like to me was I I really wanted to go to those mayors, those governors and senators, um, particularly the ones in New Jersey and say, don't, don't you have any pride in your state? Why, why do we have to not only have all of this $100 billion of incentives and then bend over backwards? Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with this not having any feedback, not knowing what the consequence of any of this is. Um, so I, I feel like that really sets the stage of this, this immense opportunity to really really change how we how we use our own money, our own taxpayer money. I love that because when you start thinking about the, the necessity of competition and when you put some things like, oh, let's do like an architecture competition or anything like that, you're generating free work. You're generating something that is not a natural asset to the place or to the, to the people. And I deal with this between cities that are competing for retailers or competing for you know, federal dollars for roads or something like that is at some point when we start competing against each other, 
we look at the people across from us as the other people. Yes. And the reality is we are one. We are all tied together. And yes, we may be under a different you know, municipality boundary or n- different jurisdiction, but the idea that we have to compete against each other in, in a downward spiral uh, yeah, is the exact opposite, I think, of how we should be approaching this. So if you were to speak to um, you, the, the people that are making those decisions, industrial authorities, city councils, you know, county governments, state governments, What's that core message? How do they reach out to you? How do they get engaged in these conversations? And where can they go for some more resources? Yeah, absolutely. I think for us, our first and foremost, we are here to uh, help our customers do their business better, better, faster, and faster. Um, their core business is building and improving their communities. So these are um, the developers that are just like me, just like um, the other other team members at our company. That is our focus. That said, we have very, very, very valuable, very important stakeholders. And those are, uh, for example, the public agencies like you described that are responsible for, um, for administrating, for managing those programs. Um, what, what we are really focusing now is understanding the ways that a particular agency in Connecticut manages their processes versus one in Florida. And for us, we've gotten an incredibly deep and broad understanding of how public incentives are managed in the seven key states that are our focus. Um, and I think in particular, my message to, my message to uh, agencies, for example, like the New York City EDC, that's the largest economic development authority in the entire country. And this is the one dedicated to New York City. Uh, We have a special um, uh, arrangement with them. We're considered one of the founder fellows. So they choose eight technology companies in New York City every year to do deep partnerships with in terms of their data and their organization. And for for me, our our message to them is to say, what, what is it true that you want your city to become? where are you right now and what is the difference that is there and and how can incentives be targeted to transform what would not have happened otherwise and the expression often is this idea is a but for test and i think the idea with redist is we want to be able to play within the rules that have already been set once we are able to do that effectively, accurately, um, and in great detail and great lengths, then we feel like we're ready to ask the question, why are these rules written the way that they are? And I think what I want to be able to offer to the New York City EDC and other amazing agencies like them is to say, this is what our thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands of customers are doing, not what they're saying, this is what they're actually doing on their projects in terms of the incentives. This is what they're interested in. This is what they really don't care about. So why don't we help out? We, we want to share this information. So your legislative process and your um, process of writing bills um, that dictate this type of funding can become better and better and faster and faster. Yeah, this, this seems like an incredibly necessary uh, advancement in, in this whole long history of financing like you're saying and 
And I, I really want to dig in a little bit, kind of rewind a little bit more here. And I greatly enjoy hearing founders' stories. So I'm curious, you know, you talked about your, your three different kind of uh, positions, you yeah. know, and how they came together to create this idea in your mind. But yeah. how did that morph throughout, you know, your, your founding story here? How did that morph uh, into what Redist is now? Mm -hmm. I think there's something that is very, very specific in the way that I'll answer that question. And I think there's something very fundamental and bigger picture in the way that I'll answer that question. So mm -hmm. in terms of the specific tactical thing, the Redist would never have existed if it wasn't for me having met my first investor in my real estate development company. So he is actually the co-founder in uh, Redist. So he's a full stack engineer. He's a Penn computer science and Wharton alum. And our personalities are, I can't imagine two more complimentary people. Uh, so I'm essentially the type that uh, loves talking to people that um, wipes the kids noses on the soccer dad. I'm the one who likes to cheer, cheer people up. Like that's my, my, uh, natural personality and persona. And then Jonathan is incredibly uh, inquisitive, incredibly observant, and has a fantastic ability to see the big picture um, when uh, I'm able to often really focus to quite uh, significant depth on details. Uh, so the, the two of us, I think, uh, are, I just can't imagine a better pair of people uh, to, to lead this company. Um, so if it wasn't for, for him, being my first investor before my brother, before my parents in my development business, it was actually Jonathan that was my first investor. Uh, <laughs> so if it wasn't for him, then I, there would be no Redis and the story wouldn't be here. Uh, and I think more fundamentally to kind of, to, to bring it really further back, the story that's often portrayed in the media about folks that are founders in tech are people like Elizabeth Holmes, uh, people like Adam Newman, uh, people like, what do I know his name? The founder of Katera. And you can go on and on and on about these people. N namely, I think that the storyline that is forgotten is that the backbone of entrepreneurship, the backbone of small business in America are new Americans that are immigrants to this country. That's always been the case since Italian uh, Italian people, Jewish people, Irish people, German people, every group that came to the United States in waves, they were the backbone of the American economy and they were the backbone of entrepreneurship. And I think particularly for me, uh, there was this fate of destiny or fate of good luck or a stroke of good luck was uh, during the Iran-Iraq war. My family lived in Bahrain, which is a country that is about the size of Manhattan, the Persian Gulf, uh, a staunch U.S. ally. Uh, they have a very unique uh, demographic reality, which is that they're, the monarchy that rules that country is uh, Sunni Muslim, and the population is uh, majority non-Arab and majority Shia Muslim. Uh, and as you could imagine, as the Iran-Iraq the Iran war was starting, that country was very fearful about what its uh, ethnically different and religiously different population might do in a circumstance like that, very unfairly so. I think that those um, mm. thoughts came to be. Um, but essentially what the consequence was is 
regular folks like my parents, my mom's a chemist, my dad's an accountant, uh, had uh, their work visas rescinded. Um, oftentimes it was overnight uh, and uh, folks were just put into vans and said, go back to the airport and we don't care where you go, just leave. Uh, and uh, out of courtesy, because my parents, my, my dad had some friends that apparently uh, had some strings to pull. So they were given a week uh, to essentially pack up their lives, pack up their kids and just go wherever. They literally just didn't care, just leave. Uh, and uh, for us, uh, we also through an amazing stroke of luck uh, got green cards to come to the United States that same week. Uh, so the way that I understand it is that if we hadn't got those visas that week and had to return to either Pakistan or India, our number in the queue for green cards would have been back to the bottom. So this story would never have happened. This, none of this would be here if it wasn't for that stroke of luck. Um, so those are the two things that I would say are the most formative in this path to getting to, to what we're discussing today. Wow, that is incredibly powerful, and uh, and and I think when we talk about founders, we talk about starting something. Um, I, I can tell that it's it's deeply personal for you, and that that is is amazing to to make that connection. and uh, And we're all grateful to have you and your family uh, here in the United States. So, so getting into some of the the details of this is um, you you've got Redist. Um, and you've also started the American Building podcast. Walk mm -hmm. us through how that project started. Uh, so this was why I'm such a huge fan of uh, LinkedIn. Uh, it's I generally am incredibly uh, skeptical about social media, uh, and I think anyone that is a student of news and history, modern history, can can understand that. But I think particularly uh, LinkedIn has been quite transformative to my career, because I don't think I would have been successful as a developer if I hadn't had the opportunity to freely advertise myself uh, on LinkedIn through things I really enjoyed researching and, and writing about every single day after I left Excel. Um, but in particular, what, why I'm mentioning that is the, uh, the gentleman that bought the firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design after Michael Graves passed away, a gentleman named Joe Fury, he actually, I'd just been reading my posts about different things in the architecture world and real estate industry that I was researching and, and just sharing with, with the folks in my LinkedIn network every day, free, just because I, I just enjoyed doing this type of research. He had said, hey, like you seem like a cool person. And I, I messaged back, I was like, I am a cool person. <laughs> so he was like, you should just totally come meet us for a coffee and just chit chat. Uh, and I think he was in the, the, the process of figuring out what does the future of such a remarkable firm that's essentially a Louis Vuitton of the architecture world. Uh, what does the future of a firm like that look like after the founder of the firm is no longer there? Uh, so we met up, we really hit it off, and we realized that there was something to this idea of a new way of presenting a business to the rest of the world, whether it's a new one that is on its path to transforming an industry, Redist, or one that has been here for a long time and has transformed our industry, which is Michael Graves, in terms of the sensitivity to how different people access buildings and, and access good design. And we put our, our thinking caps on, we did a lot of brainstorming, a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, and we came up with a concept of what this was. And coincidentally, it actually was developed as not technically like a tied thing with Redis, but we realized over time that there is such a beautiful uh, tie between these two companies that uh, essentially allow us to tell the story 
of many of our customers, but also then be able to exhibit our, our strengths and our capacities to the outside world, um, to folks that come on as our guests. And we love to give that opportunity for people to understand what we're doing in depth and hopefully deepen the relationships with them through our firm or through, through Michael Graves as well. Yeah, this is something that's near and dear to my heart as well, too. So to listen to a, another podcast creator um, tell their story. And I think that's, you know, it, it's definitely a tool for marketing. It's, uh, but it's also a tool to share ideas, thoughts, mm -hmm. um, dialect that may not be shared with the world previously. And that, that was part of my goal with this mm -hmm. podcast was to share these discussions that ultimately, hopefully you can change the thoughts and opinions and mindset maybe in the future. Um, yeah. so I, I just want to tell you this one thing, Matt, yeah. is that when I, I'm so frankly describing the, I mean, the underpinning and the foundations of the podcast, but there is something that is even more fundamental is that in order to make an endeavor, and, and you guys know this just as well as I do, a podcast is a labor of love. There's nobody mm -hmm. that's going to come out after episode five or even episode 50 or even episode 100 to say, Matt and Mark, you are smart. You are important. Gosh darn it, people like that's not the, that's not what this is. It's uh -huh. it's a labor of love for a really really long time, and I think that you have to be an incredibly curious person in order to to want to transcend that long path to be able to present your baby, your project as this amazing thing that that like a couple times people. <laughs> I'll tell you a little side story, but I think it sure. gets this point that it's yes, it is marketing for us, but it's I, I want I want listeners to understand that this is first and foremost a labor labor of love. Because I went to an event for uh, a politician in, in New Jersey and was speaking to someone that I met at the event, and he is in the real estate industry. So uh, he was mentioning, oh, uh, I really like um, listening to different podcasts about our industry. And I, I just started last week uh, listening to this, this podcast and I binged the first 10 episodes and it's really amazing. And it's like the, the so thought provoking the questions and this and that. I was like, oh, what's, what's the name of the podcast? And he's like, oh, it's the American Building Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and not a celebrity like, yet? <laughs> That's my podcast. And my first fanboy moment. Because uh, yeah. I was probably five years younger than me. He was like, oh my God, it's <laughs> that's awesome that's, that's where you have to tra you have to trash it saying you know it's not really that not not that good like yeah it's <laughs> like the worst yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, i'm just curious uh you definitely hit it on the head there it's it's really a passion passion project labor of love mm -hmm. um it, it's it's really a way to have these discussions put out and be curious and it's really helped me you know selfishly learn quite a bit more than I could have ever, you know, without it. But I, I'm curious of all your guests so far, has there been one that has stood out most to you? I'm not trying to get you in trouble, but <laughs> is there one that has been most influential and, and kind of what were the lessons learned high level from that discussion? There are, I, all 55 of my guests from season, I, I kind of tack on season one to season two because season one was literally right before the pandemic and it was only four episodes and then the pandemic. Mm. So I, I kind of like, 
I don't want them to feel like the like stepchildren. So I kind of put them all together as the 55 that are effectively season two. Uh, I would say that they're all of them are the best. All of them are my favorite uh, and all of them are incredible. I would say one, uh, some in particular that I'm, I'm able to remark about, I would say would be uh, Marianne Gilmartin, who is the uh, CEO of Mag Partners and the former CEO of Four City Ratner, so a resident, major residential REIT, uh, and her episode where she talks about uh, her first major project as the, the principal of her own firm uh, and how it happened to get off the ground during the worst economic calamity of a century. Uh, and just imagine the fate of someone so skilled, so talented, has an impeccable uh, track record and resume, and that is what falls on your lap on one of your first major projects. And I think from her, what I saw very clearly is this sense of grace, this sense of poise, and this sense of uh, direct honesty. So she went to her investors or equity investors or lenders, and she said, I'm not going to lie, this is... This is bad. This is really bad. <laughs> but let's, she said, I would encourage us to think about what is our path out? What are we going to do? Because she said, this is a project in Chelsea. And she effectively said, Chelsea will always be Chelsea. Manhattan will always be Manhattan. And New York will always be New York. So if you are long on New York, let's figure out a way on how to make this work. Uh, and I think that if you're able to be that, direct and that honest and that uh, I think pointed on a shared goal, then then there's something truly inspirational, I think, for developers of any size and any scale, because we all face really horrible stuff at, at every point in, in our first projects. Uh, so I think she's one of the ones that I would uh, really remark on. And I think on the designer side, because um, half our guests are developers, half our designers. And on the designer side, I would say Vishan uh, Chakrabarti. So he is the um, recently, until recently, the dean of the uh, School of Architecture at Berkeley. Uh, he's held senior roles uh, at um, related companies at uh, and other agencies in uh, in earlier groups, rather in the in the real estate industry. And for me, uh, his firm is is taking on absolutely massive, amazing projects. So he was hired to do the renovation, redevelopment, and expansion of the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I could not imagine a more iconically American project um, by architect I.M. Pei, who's an MIT alum as well, was an MIT alum as well. And what he described uh, in terms of his process. So I asked him, like, how do you take the work, <laughs> the work of Virginia is one of the greatest architects of the 20th century and actually and do something better and 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 build on that. And he said, with an incredible amount of humility and with an incredible amount of uh, research and detail and care. And I think that there are some personality traits in our industry that are um, might be glorified to an inappropriate extent. And I think those are ones that you often can imagine to be synonymous with the word real estate developer, aggressive, brutish. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, shoot from the hip, take no prisoners, any of those types of things, which are the antithesis of teamwork. Uh, and I think that the, the, everything that Mary Glamartin described in that experience uh, 
and Vishan Chakrabarti describing his experience, I think are the best versions of the way a real estate developer should behave or a designer should behave. And I think those are the values that our industry should um, exhibit to uh, the, the rest of our fellow Americans. <laughs> yeah, it's so good to hear you say that because I think that there's a lot of internal focus on our own skill sets or our own ability to deliver and a little bit of navel gazing because you know, we've all gone through the imposter syndrome thing where we're, we're not exactly sure what we're going to do if it's, if it's going to be successful, but mm-hmm. we push through. And I think that's the lesson I think in real estate, as you're saying, you know, if you're going to play the long game, you have to be you know, diligent. You've got to mm-hmm. go through the checklist, make sure you're, you're checking off everything along the way and, and make sure that you ultimately deliver on what you say you're going to deliver. So if you don't mind breaking it down for us, um, you, know, you talk about some of the foundations and the, the attitude it takes to approach these projects with, with a multiple skill set. How do you deliver those projects? When does your team plug in and, and what does your, your workflow look like? Absolutely. I think, I mean, to be honest, it would be incorrect for us to say we've got it all figured out because we're still an early stage company. We're between, we're on our way to series A, we're uh, eight people uh, and we're growing. I would say this, the, the core way that I approach sales as the, the head of business development for the company is we will always put ourselves in the shoes of our customers. What is it that they need in order to get to the next step? There are opportunities for us to say, you know what, we're not going to give you our calculations of how valuable it's going to be to you until you pay, pay a deposit. Or we're not going to do this work until we, we see some, some amount of money from you. There's something very dishonest about that process. And I think that for us, we initially thought maybe that's the approach that we want to take. But I actually found that when we took a very radically different approach. We got such an incredibly strong reception from uh, the early set of customers that had said to us that we, like one in particular said, I can't believe that you spent all the time to figure out all the stuff and I haven't even given you a dime yet. Uh, and it ended up being one of our first customers. And he said, I want you to do this for all of my projects. He said, I don't want to hire anybody else, but you to do everything for all of these now. Uh, and I think that, that that approach is particularly the way that we, um, we look at our business development. And now more in terms of a process, I think that was another part of your question, is we could be doing 100 different things every minute here in terms of, of really pushing on that question of how do we get to that nth sale? So first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. I think in particular, what it is, is being very, 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 very clear with ourselves who our ideal customer is and who our ideal customer is not. And that, that I think is particularly where we are right now is very, 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 very clearly saying uh, and being honest to ourselves and to the folks that come to us for our services, who is an ideal customer for us and who unfortunately isn't. Yeah. Yeah, it goes along with the podcast too. You know, we we give and give <laughs> of our time and effort, and you know, without expecting anything in return, you often get way more than you even expected or imagined. So that's that's very interesting that you've taken that tact. That uh, it's basically the road less traveled. You know, when it comes to sales. So that's a that's a great point. Can we, 
I'd like to transition here near the end of the show here and talk a little bit more. Um, we, we touched on your uh, identity as a developer as well, but can we unpack that a little bit here, like I said, near the end and, and learn a little bit more about what you're doing on the development side to give everybody that, that picture of every single angle in which you're coming from when attacking you know, all of your endeavors, really? I would say one thing that I've come to realize is that I do have a lot of energy and I do have a lot of time but there is something in terms of focus that's really important. And I'm at the stage with our company where we, I think we're moving our way from a relatively small percentage chance statistically for us to really make it to a perhaps strong chance that we're going to make, like we're going to really make it as a company. And I think it's really important for myself or anyone else in a position like this to have a, a sense of duty to their company, to their employees, their customers and their investors to say, I need to start saying no to things that are not my core responsibility. So for me, um, I don't take on any development deals. I uh, People still approach me and say, hey, do you, do you wanna do Redis and be a JV partner on this deal? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I think for me, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to develop a, um, an apartment building in Hoboken and a condo building in Hoboken. One's fully sold, hopefully sell the other one um, uh, shortly later, like later this year. Uh, but I have no intent, no interest in doing any development deals because there's plenty of work uh, for us to, for, for me to take responsibility for uh, within within Redis. But I think the question that you're really asking is, what did I learn through that process? Uh, and I think for me, it's that the uh, what you learn at a place like Xtel or any other fabulous company that your listeners uh, may have, uh, maybe working at or considering working at, is that whatever you learn there, only a slice of that is going to be relevant once you start your own firm. Uh, so it's one thing to be the guy that runs the performance and gives it to little boss who gives it to big boss who talks to biggest boss and the biggest boss talks to the pension fund from Korea that actually gives the money. Uh, when all of that is collapsed, where you are the, the analyst, the associate, little boss, middle boss, and big boss, it's all one person, uh, that the, the reality of all the things that are happening along the way become much, much more clear. Uh, so I think that that is something that uh, folks that are listening should be very cognizant of mm. is that the transferability is relatively small. Um, that said, that means that when you have a desire to leave, don't stop yourself from leaving because you want to say, I want five years more experience working at Tishman Spire. I want 10 years more experience working at Graystar. Because I honestly can say at the, the other side of this, it's not relevant. You mentioned the the term, I think it was slice, uh, a slice of responsibility in each of the little like roles that you have. Years ago, I read the book Rework by the guys who founded um, Basecamp. And the premise of that was to not redo the work you've already done, but mm -hmm. to your point, simplify life, Some say, this is what's for sale. If it works for this group of customers, we're going to focus mm -hmm. on this group of customers alone, not make changes, not make updates make sure that it's the best possible product to deliver 
and saturate that specific market. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I love that idea of the point of focus because it seems counter to our idea as designers that everything is custom. Every mm-hmm. site is different. Every P, everything that we do, we wake up every day and want to solve a new problem. Yes. And, and, and I feel like that you have that kind of energy where you're constantly looking for those new problems, but at the same time wrestling with how do I keep it the same? How do I simplify? How do I learn to say no and keep your sanity? Mm-hmm. So talk to me you know, about your inspirations, about the things, you know, in, let's, say, let's call it a post-pandemic world if, if that mm-hmm. exists, but what are the things that either wake you up at night and you know, scare you to death or what are the things that really inspire you, those little nuggets? Yeah, I think the, any, any CEO, myself included, of a growing technology companies should be scared to death that whatever they're making, their customers don't want. Yeah. That is that's it. That, that is that is what the number one thing a CEO should be worrying about is. It's not about how much press you get. It's not about how good you look in the picture in the real deal, whatever your industry magazine is that's relevant to you. It's whatever you're making. If it does not serve your customers' need acutely and precisely, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your investors' money. Yeah. Um, just pack up and go home. So uh, I would say that that that's the thing that. Uh, very honestly, very sincerely, keeps me keeps me up at night. But the question is, what do you do then? Is just worrying about that's not relevant. It's not like a useful activity. The question that I orient myself right now today when we're talking is, get to the end sale. What do I need right after this podcast? Who do I need to call of those near people that are almost there to sign a contract? How can I call them on a Friday afternoon so they know I'm not sitting at the beach uh, drinking a martini or whatever? I don't know. I'm here grinding because I want his project or her project or their project to do well. That that's that's what I need to do because I need to get to the end sale. Um, so that that's what keeps me up at night. But then that's what I do to respond to that. Yeah, and and just to kind of bring this, uh, kind of wrap this all up into one final kind of question here is, you know, looking forward. I know the people. Most people don't like the word legacy, but <laughs> what what do you hope is kind of the long term vision of Redis? Maybe even the the podcast. Kind of just your your endeavors. I think all. So what's fascinating is we're having this conversation precisely at the time when we're reassessing the podcast as a pivot between season two and season three. And we're at a really important growth inflection with our company. And I would describe both like this or in this way. So for the podcast, what I really want folks that are listening who are both the potential customers for Redis and Michael Graves or developers, but the larger uh, listener community that we have is to be able through the third season to have a greater curiosity and a greater empathy for this amazing country that it is that we have. So what I want is I don't want a podcast that 99% of the time focuses on New York City and LA. I don't care. I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm I'm not interested in anymore. Um, What I want is to show in all of its forms, all of its beauty, all of its rawness, what what do buildings across this country look like? So what we are thinking about is presenting season three like this as 12 states over 12 months 
And each of those months, we focus on four projects. So once per week in that particular state. And we choose 12 states that we think are emblematic of the American experience now. So states that are undergoing rapid change, states that have ec massive economic dislocation, uh, states that may not even exist in five years because of climate change. Uh, I think that that is the way that we want, that I want to shape this third season for whoever is listening to get a greater sense of what is out there. Um, because uh, literally the reason why this inspired is this is literally what I did last year is I, I, I lived in 12 places over 12 months because for Redis, we decided to be all virtual uh, for the year. So I essentially spent a month in West Virginia. Uh, I spent a month in the Poconos. I spent a month in Allentown and Bethlehem. I spent a month in Western North Carolina and Western Virginia, month in Texas. And precisely for me, I found that as perhaps the most transformative experience of my entire adulthood that I've done. Uh, so I want other folks to come along for the ride and see, see what the story, what the story actually is, as opposed to what social media companies or mainstream media chooses to, to write the story as. Um, so that's, that's what my goal is for season three. Uh, and I hope people enjoy it because it's going to be, uh, you guys know, another labor of love. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think with, with Redis, what I want the, the legacy for Redis to be is to say that our government is in service of the people. Our taxpayer dollars are meant to drive economic activity that creates jobs that allows people to have good, decent homes and are able to put food on the table for their kids. That is what I want the legacy for, for Redis to be. It, do I want my legacy to be a bazillion dollar sale? And like, yeah, yeah, of course, yes, yes. That's what I want for my investors, but there has to be something more. And I think that the, the thing that I want people or folks that are somehow that are our customers or investors or learn about us or are our fans with Redis, I want them to, to be able to maybe take that idea to their own niche, their own part of the world, their own, their own part of America, their own thing that they do, and to say, how do we change and improve government so it is in service of the people and not us in service of the government? So that's what, that's what I hope transformatively is what, what happens with Redis. Well, I really appreciate your perspective and especially your experience of having seen so much of the, the built environment and, and looking at kind of a holistic way. And I think that visionary thinking is what we need in order to transition from, you know, civil service and the way government's been administered, you know, for the last couple hundred years into this, this new realm that's much more dynamic and, and much more thoughtful um, than the sort of standard formula that we, we arrive at in so many places. Where can we learn more about your company, uh, the podcast, uh, the platforms that you use, and uh, where could our listeners learn more about you? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking that, uh, Mark. Um, so I would say the best way would be um, through the company's uh, websites. Uh, so that would be uh, redist.us, R-E-D-I-S-T.us excuse me, AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Uh, you can also check out the LinkedIn pages for both of the companies or literally just DM me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm there every day and I reply to almost everybody. 
Uh, and unless someone someone emails me asking if I need like janitorial services, <laughs> I do not need janitorial services. No. So if anyone wants to be able to ask me about that. Uh, so uh, those are the two that are the best. And then in terms of listening, um, in terms of statistics, we know that the vast majority of our listeners on the podcast go to iTunes. There are many lovely platforms, but that one seems to be the, the most popular one. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, the work that you've done and, and your stewardship and, and really just your passion of being able to apply um, all of your experience into a, a very special endeavor. When your uh, Series A uh, comes up, are you going to do any uh, you know, crowdsourcing or any sort of um, you know, where, where the public could get involved, non-accredited investors could get involved? That's an excellent question. Um, I know there's there's a, a very important process to follow. I would say, I'll say in spirit what my answer is, and then I'll caveat it by saying the lawyers may tell me no. But, uh, <laughs> in spirit, what I want to say is that we have, um, so far with our two rounds, we have 58 investors. And the reason that we have 58, not that we needed 58, it's that we... I wanted it to be, I wanted there to be an opportunity for anybody that, that wanted to come along for this ride and, and, and hopefully make a good return on God willing on their investment to be able to do so. So we, we literally, the smallest check that we took was a thousand dollars for a $2.5 million is the smallest check that we took was a thousand dollars. We may say it's bonkers. Yeah. Maybe it is bonkers, but uh, that's, that's the logic that we, that we've gone with. And I think, what I'm so proud about is that the vast majority of those people are from our industry. They're, they're real estate people that they, they saw it and they got it. Uh, so the, I, in spirit, I want to be fully open to, to anyone. I think that the minimum might be a little bit larger than thousand mm-hmm. yeah, uh, dollars, but uh, that, that's the spirit by which I, I want this series a to, um, to go. Love that answer. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Uh, and, and just kind of wrap up here. Uh, you know, we we really appreciate the collaboration with your show, and would love to love to see how season three turns out. I, I know uh, what you said was that that's such a a great idea, and it'll be fun for for you and your listeners to to make that travel across the country and. I, I know I'm going to be listening in. So thank you again for all your effort and thank you again for your time here today. Uh, thank do, you. Do you have any? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you so it. Well, I would say if someone wants to frame or get like a visual of what I hope even some small way season three can become is uh, so another, another Jersey boy, Anthony Bourdain, uh, his parts unknown is uh, was uh, this means of exploring America and exploring the world through a very honest, fair look at, um, at, at what he saw around him. Uh, and I think it has to particularly come from someone whose DNA is that of an underdog. And anyone from New Jersey knows that they have that DNA. So I hope that uh, I can take some inspiration from, from him and, and bring that honesty and bring that underdog Jersey mentality to the, the rest of the country and, and see what amazing work everyone else is doing. Awesome. That is great. Yeah. And thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And, uh, and we look forward to listening to more episodes of the podcast and I hope our paths cross again soon.
Thank you very much, Mark. And thank you very much, Matt. All right. And thank you to your listeners as well. Yeah, you're welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.